a few weeks ago, I was in um, I was in Omaha, and I was visiting. Suzanne and I went to go visit her brother, and in turn was visiting with some friends there, and just started talking about the vision of Christ City and what we're trying to do. And they kind of let me go on a whole rant of like what this looks like and what this could be, and and then they just looked at me, and they said, you know. We work with, and they do, we, they, we work with churches and pastors and leaders um, all over the U.S., and they said, I can only think of about two other churches that are attempting to do what you guys are trying to do. And so in one moment, I was like, yay, and then I thought, oh, like, because you're like lonely, because it's big, and this past Sunday, we started that discussion, the, the kind of church that we want to be and, and what it would mean and look like for us to step into that, and, um, and for a lot of you, Maybe you were sitting here last week and you heard the message and you actually maybe were more like troubled, um, maybe frustrated because what you were hearing was that we're going to be a place to belong for others and that maybe you were given a bunch of hurdles and hoops to jump over and jump through in places you've been a part of before. And you were almost hearing a message going, wait a second, where are all the hurdles and hoops? Like, I had to go through those in life. Why don't others have to go through that in life? That would be fair. Um, for others of you, you probably were sitting in here, though, and what you were hearing us talk about was more like a balm because you have, you have wrestled for so long with trying to find a, a place to truly belong, a place that would just wants to be with you, that's not trying to size up if you have the right theology or understanding or X, Y, and Z. And for all of us, what we talked about last week it was a challenge, a challenge to not hide behind our theologies, but also a challenge not to hide behind our resentments, that we want to be a place to belong. And that takes a lot of work, because trust me, I know you. I know stories of people that stand on this side and this side, and it's shocking to me that you all are in the same room right now at times. It really is, and yet I love it, because I believe that this is what the church looks like, that we have varying ideas and understandings and politics and approaches, and yet we all come centered around a simple gospel that we just want to know him more and that we make that the center of what we're about. Now, here's the catch, though. Our vision, as Christ said, you see, a vision tells you where you're going. That's what a vision tells you. It's a big thing. It tells you we want to go to that place, and so everything we do is going to be filtered and shaped through this vision. And the first half of our vision is that we want to be a place to belong. But the second half of our vision is that we want to be a place to know God. That we want those who come here not just to belong, but for people who come here to be able to know God. And that's a big undertaking. Now, I was, um, I was uh, this past week, I came across a, um, an article that CNN did, and it was, it was 10 reasons why people go to church and then, like, also nine reasons why they don't. Now, here's the thing. The nine reasons why they don't were pretty, like, amorphous. Like, it didn't have a lot of shape and contours to it. Like, it was things like, um, it was things like, let me see here. It was like, they haven't found a place they like yet, okay? Um, they don't have a reason for this question, and therefore, they don't really want to give a reason, and that's that. It was things like, um, they don't like the sermons, which... That really offended me. I don't know these people, but I was really offended by that, so, like, I'm glad they're not here. All right, so, I'm joking. Uh, probably not. Anyway, um, 
they are not believers and they practice faith in other ways. Okay, so those are some of the reasons why. But here's the thing. It was the reasons why they want to come to church that I found really interesting. Now, here's how I want to do this. We're going to go through these 10 things. How many of you watched Family Feud growing up? Oh my gosh, why not all of you? Okay, you know how this worked growing up. Like, you got, you got sick, like sick in middle school and you stayed home. And so, because you were big enough to stay home and the parents left, and what'd you do? Like, if you had basic television, um, you watched The Price is Right, all right? And, and then Family Feud. And I always loved at the end of Family Feud, I, they would kind of go through, like, you got to go through this list of things, of surveys they did, and then everybody read it together. And I would sit in my room and read it with them, all right? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read this list together because we're going to have fun at church and it's okay and you need to smile. All right, so as the list comes up, I want you to say it with me. Drum roll. Thank you. All right, the 10 reasons why people go to church. Number 10, to please their family, spouse, or partner. Okay, fair enough. How about number nine? To meet new people or socialize. Number eight, they feel obligated to go. Pause. Is this true? Yes? Okay. <laughs> Number seven, to continue their family's religious traditions. Counsel, I don't hear you. All right, here we go. Number six, to be a part of a faith community. You guys are like, this is so cheesy. Go with it. All right. Number five, they find the sermons valuable. Really? Don't lie. Why was it this higher for you? Really insecure right now. Number four, for comfort in times of trouble or sor sorry, sorrow. That's my fault. <laughs> Number three, to become a better person. Number two, so their children will have a moral foundation. And wait, number one reason why people want to go to church to become closer to God. That's the list. All right, now here's the thing. Um, all the percentages on these were somewhere between the teens and 60. Only one hit over 80%. Only one. And that was to, like, get closer to God. Now, here's what this study tells us, this survey. That you all can't line up of why you come here for the most part, except for one reason. That over 80% of you sitting right here in this room are here because you want to get to know God more. Something in you is begging for there to be someone out there listening to you and knowing that you can know this person, you can know this being. No matter how much you deny it, if you're sitting here this morning, there's an 80% chance that that is you. No matter what your story has been, there's an 80% chance that you are here because something is in you saying, I just want to know God. The question is this, can I know God? That's your question deep, deep within. And this question, though, can I know God, it brings a lot of baggage, doesn't it? Because there's one side in this room that you've had all kind of churches and church leaders and experiences put things on you that have shamed you and discouraged you and pushed you away because of who you are and how you're wired and what you think, whatever it may be, what you did or didn't do. 
So it's a big deal that you're here this morning. But then there's others of us in this room, I'd say, that almost come with this overly confident. Like you just kind of assume you know God. You just kind of assume you got this down because you did some classes, learned some theologies, checked your boxes. And both of us in this room, if that's you on either side, are running the risk of completely missing out on something here. Completely missing out on something. And this is like the space that we're trying to occupy as a church. That like you can somehow bring your baggage and yet listen, like it's baggage you don't need. And the other side is you can almost be overly confident that because you know about something, you think you actually experience and know something. And this is the tension that we live in. And so as I was kind of thinking through this message, I was like, where to start? And the only thing I could keep going back to was, was John 17. And, and John 17 is kind of a really uncomfortable, weird passage. Like you look at it and there's not enough like, how do I classify this? Okay, what's that? And you don't really know. I mean, verse one says, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed. Now, that at first maybe just seems simple to you, but here's the thing. He's having a conversation with his disciples, his friends, this long conversation, and all of a sudden, he just stops and then looks up and then with his eyes open and starts talking to God right there. I mean, that's not the person that you feel comfortable around, right? Like, you're not saying, like, hey, let's hang out this weekend with those kind of people. You're just not doing it. You haven't done it, and you won't. And so, like, Jesus just, like, goes something, 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 almighty heavenly Father. And you're like, what is happening here? And the thing is, you read what's happening, and it feels like it's a conversation you weren't supposed to be a part of. Like, it's a little bit too uncomfortable and intimate. Um, it's almost like you were hearing some bedroom talk right, like pillow talk. You know what I'm saying? Okay, like, let me, let me lay this out for you. Um, there's front porch conversations. Like, front porch conversations are people like UPS driver, right? The neighbor that you're kind of hoping doesn't talk to you that much longer. Like, you stand at the edge of your porch and like, yeah, something, something, I wish I was inside. You know what I mean? And like, that's front porch conversation. Oh, hey, so-and-so who didn't tell me you were coming over, we're gonna stay right here in the humidity and the mosquitoes because I want you to go away front porch conversations. They're fine and good, but like the next conversation though is like kitchen conversations. You invite someone in, you're sitting around a table, maybe you open up a bottle of wine, and you're just kind of talking as you're making your meal there. It's a little more intimate and detailed kitchen conversations. But then you have like living room conversations. And this is where you sit down, and you don't really have like a bunch of tables and things in front of you, and you just talk. And then you're even okay not even having a talk. Maybe you're kind of watching TV together or doing something that you feel comfortable enough to be with another person, living room conversations. And then lastly, though, there's bedroom conversations, right? And those are not for everyone else. They're intimate conversations. Jesus, I think, here is having almost like a, a bedroom conversation. And he's letting us in on something. He's letting us see something that I think, if we are honest, like, makes us uncomfortable. And we read this and we go, like, could I ever have a, this kind of relationship and talk this way to a person, much less a spouse? 
Like he's just, he's riffing on his relationship with the father, talking about all these ways that he knows the father and what the father has done for him and how he's known them since beginning creation and how he's so loved by the father. Um, now, the person who wrote this was John. He was a disciple of Jesus. He's writing this decades, decades later after this has happened. He's just thinking through it all. And you have to remember, John is a Jewish man using Greek words to communicate Hebrew, ancient Hebrew thoughts, right? He wasn't Greek, he was Jewish, and he had a Hebrew understanding of how the world worked. But he was still using Greek words. And so we look at this, and there's a, there's a word that's kind of used throughout, it's kind of laced throughout this passage, and it's the word gnosko. Everybody say gnosko. Gnosko simply means, we'll see it here, to learn or understand something. You have to remember, um, for Greeks, they're the founders of philosophy. Like, the Greeks are the ones that learned how to really utilize the mind with logic more than other cultures up to that point. To this day, Greek thought and culture is the main influence over you. You have no choice in that whatsoever, right? You have to think more logically than anything else because of what was handed to you. But if you were a Jewish person and you thought about this word, gnosko, that wouldn't be the word that you would think about. You would think about another word from the Hebrew, and that word is yada. Everybody say yada. This is actually where we get yada, yada, yada from, all right? Like Seinfeld, whatever. Like, you know, you go, like, and it's, it's base, yada, just means like to know something. Like, yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know, I got it, yeah. Something, 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 right? But here's the thing. If you were a Hebrew person, a Jewish person, this word yada had much more robust, robust meaning. It meant to know about. It meant to partner. It meant to deeply connect with something or someone. That you aren't just knowing about something, but you're actually knowing something. Like, for example, the first one we get, like as far as like the knowing about. You study, you learn, you get it. But here's the thing with partner, like in, in the Hebrew, take Genesis chapter four, verse one, and it says, and Adam knew his wife. I don't think I need to lay out for you what's going on there, okay? Like Adam knew his wife. It's not like, oh yeah, you're Eve. It's more like intimacy. It's bedroom talk. He knew his wife. It's a covenant there. It's a deep relationship. But then we also have something where the Bible in the Old Testament connects to, like, it's deeply connected, deeply connected. Um, an example of that would be, like, Exodus 2.25. God's people were crying out, and it says that God heard their cry, and he knew them. It says he knew them. Another translation says, and he saw them. He saw their plight. Like, this idea of yada is a very rich robust word. If there was one word I were to choose to try to wrap up the whole concept of yada, it would simply be the word relationship. Relationship. You're getting to know something for the reason of relationship. You're partnering with someone for relationship. You're deeply connected with someone in relationship. But this word yada means relationship. Matter of fact, another, the root word of yada is yad, which means to just like reach your hand up. Like, think about the song earlier that we were singing, I'm reaching up out of the dust. This would be what was used for, like, Adam coming out of the dust. 
It's relationship. You're reaching for something deep and profound. Now, with that said, I want you to look at some of these verses. We'll put them on the screen. Some of these verses, and think in terms of this richness of a relationship and how John may be thinking through that. So verse 2 to 3, it says this. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, that they would have relationship with you, deep connection. Let's move on to verses 8. For I gave them the words that you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. Now, they're not saying like, well, Jesus, you proved yourself apologetically enough. Because we see after Jesus like ascends, people are still like trying to wrestle with like, did this really happen? But it's saying that in the presence of Jesus, they have deep certainty about the Father. Relationship to know. Let's move on. Verse 23. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I and them, you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you love me. Now it's talking about we're in such relationship and unity with the Father through the Son that when the world looks at us, they go, man, there's something there. They're not just calculating knowledge. Like people outside of this room are picking up on something through our relationship with the Father through the Son. And then lastly, look at verse 25. It says, righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. This is a lot, I know you get tripped up with some of the language. It's like, it's like this weaving in and out, this like infinity loop. I and them, you and me, me and them, them and me, and the world's gonna see. It's this deep connection and this deep relationship. See, Jesus isn't trying to give us a bunch of like theologies of how to get to know God. He's trying to show us an example of a relationship with God. And we're seeing it through like this intimate talk that he has. Now, the thing is, though, underneath all this study we do of this passage, of these ideas, these verses, is a question. Can I have that? Can I know God? And here's how God answers that through Jesus. He inverts it into a statement. The question isn't, can I know God? The statement is, God wants to know me. The question isn't, can I know God? It's the statement that God wants to know me. Let me ask you, do you believe that? Like, that's a hard thing, though, at times to believe. That God really wants to know me? I'll give you an example. I was thinking about this. My daughter, Charlotte, is four. Um, she invites me in on everything she's doing. Daddy, you want to watch TV with Charlotte? She speaks about herself in third person. That's what Abbotties do. Um, so you want to sit with Charlotte and watch a movie? And I'm like, okay. Daddy, you want to watch, want to watch Charlotte go fast on the scooter? Sure. 
Daddy, you wanna, you wanna play My Little Pony and watch me, My Little Pony? No, I draw the line at My Little Pony because it's every single day and I'm so sick of rainbows and ponies, but still I do it. If you ever shove that in my face, we may fight. But like, she just loves My Little Pony and she wants to keep inviting me. My daughter wakes up believing that I want to center my world around her. She wakes up with that. I didn't give her that. She's hardwired with that. And there are all these times I'll deny it, like, oh, I just gotta work. And then I have to stop and go, oh my gosh, this is amazing. She is just wired, it's intuitive in her for me to want to watch her, to be with her, to play with her. She's constantly inviting me in to be with her because, not because she thinks that she can't get my love, but she just knows that she somehow owed my love. That's wild stuff. When did we lose that? What happened? Because I'll be honest, that's not me. I don't wake up thinking God's like wanting to center his life around me. My tendency has always been like, I need to wake up and like get around God's glory and like serve him and glorify him and get going with my day and go charge. I saw somebody like sign off on an email recently that said, win the day. Win the day. That's what they said on their sign off in the email. And I thought, oh my gosh, who is this person that wins the day? They just make statements. Because I'm not winning. Like, I'm not Charlie Sheen or whoever this dude is. Like, I am losing days, and I'm behind the eight ball, and I'm wondering where God is. Can you relate to that? It's a hard one. It's hard to just shamelessly ask God to come be a part of what we're doing like a four-year-old because at the core, we believe that God wants to be a part of what we're doing. That's a hard ask. That's a hard thing to get realigned to. I remember the first time I was, so Suzanne, my wife, when we first got married, uh, she was finishing up college. We were young. And so she would drive 40 minutes a day uh, one direction and then 40 minutes back uh, to go to school in Oxford. We were living in Tupelo, Mississippi. And so I'd ask her, like, hey, what'd you do today, like, on your drive? And she said, I just talked to God. What? That's weird. Like, you just talked to God? I was like, what do you mean? Like, did you close your eyes or something? She goes, no, I just kept my eyes open because I'm driving. And I just, like, what'd you talk about? I told him about my day. I told him what I was afraid of. I told him what I was about to go do that day. And then I would just listen. Wild stuff, man. Like, I was like, this is weird. I don't know what to do with this. Because I'll tell you this, for me and my story, yeah, I think I had that at one point in time. But I remember about three plus years ago, trying to get ready for a sermon and, um, and thinking, God is so distant and far away. And I just knew he was. Like, I had spent my life since I was seven curating the right understandings and theologies and approaches, doing everything I possibly could to try to know this God. And here's what I found. I knew about him, but I didn't really know him. I'd keep the worship music blasting. Like, I would, I would read my Bible, memorize scripture, and I knew a lot about him. I knew the contours, but I really couldn't get to the heart. I felt so lost. 
And maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you know all the edges and contours and right approaches and right ideas, and you still can't get to the core of a simple gospel. Like, he wants to know you. So, what do we do with that? Like, how do we get there? I think it's a couple of things. I'm just going to give you my experience, a couple of things. Again, disclaimer, this is my experience, um, and that's all I can give you as a, as a, a person standing before you right now and, and giving you this. I think it starts, though, with this. We have to be willing to question and perhaps let go of what we've had so far. We have to be willing to question and perhaps let go of what we had so far. Um, look at your bulletins. There's a, a quote I want to turn your attention to by uh, Father Thomas Keating. He said, St. Teresa of Avila wrote, all difficulties in prayer can be traced to one cause, praying as if God were absent. This is the conviction that we bring with us from early childhood and apply to everyday life and to our lives in general. It gets stronger as we grow up, unless we are touched by the gospel and begin the spiritual journey. This journey is a process of dismantling the monumental illusion that God is distant or absent. This is what gets in the way for a lot of us. Someone or something handed us what we were supposed to look at God through. Like someone or something handed you a filter of how you see God. So let me help you with this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna actually save you about four sessions of therapy, all right, by what I say next, okay? Um, any therapist, I'm sorry, but I'm sure they'll come to you after this. You see God through your parents. And you see God through leaders in your life. Now, for some of you, that's crushed you. Because you grew up in a, in a house full of shame and demands. You grew up in a place where people put on you these burdens that Jesus said, how dare anyone put a weight or do anything to these children? You'd be better off with a millstone around your neck and just throw yourself into the water because it's a dangerous thing to raise children. It's a dangerous thing to, like, put on weights of shame. And you're trying your best to give order these contours of how we deal with the world around us. But for a lot of you in here, you are giving, like, these weights of shame you never could add up to. And then some of you may even say, like, that's not me. Like, I've just kind of, I've been okay but like you're still lonely with God. And here's what I'd say to you. You are just given a bunch of standards that you've been able to meet your whole life. What happens when you can't meet those standards anymore with God? Because there are those in this room that you quit meeting those standards a long time ago. And you're like, is there any relationship for me now that I don't like keep all these rules and regulations? Now, if this isn't you, if you're like, man, I'm good, I'm connected, Check out, the rest of the sermon is not for you, and that's okay. But for the rest of us, like, we have to ask the question, is that getting in the way? And this is where I believe the recovery community, like, gets it, and we miss out. If you go to any kind of recovery community, 
Like they have this first step. They have these things called 12 steps. And the first step will be that you're powerless, meaning that you're insane and you're tired of life the way it is. And you no longer can manage and fix it. So now what you want to think next is, now let's jump in and fix it. No, no, like the second step is that um, you came to believe a power greater than you could restore you to sanity. Now, that's an interesting one. A lot of people in the church that hit that one, they go, yeah, 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 the Bible. And I'm like, well, like, that's what got you in here in some ways because of all the shame you were experiencing through that. Like, the Bible didn't give you basic instructions before leaving earth. It just gave you, like, lots of weights filtered through people of how they saw it and shamed you to the ground. And now you have to perform constantly to be with God because you never think he just wants to be with you. And then once you finally start dealing with the fact that you have to give up this God that you've had so far, in a sense, the God of who was handed to you, by the way, now you're left with a third step. Like, do you have a big enough God that you can now make a decision to turn your will and life over to the care of this God as you now understand him? And the church has been so scared of these two for so long. And I'll tell you this, the church has missed out. We are so sure we have the right ideas and the right approaches to God. And yet here's the thing I would say to you if you're so sure about your relationship with God. Like, do you have intimacy with him? Do you have bedroom talk with him? Jesus did. Well, because he was divine. That's a cop-out. Like, do you have a connection with him? However you see God. If not, that's not a shame that you're doing something wrong. It may be like you're going to need, like, help. That maybe whatever you've had so far is, like, been good for this journey, but, like, you're going to need to go, like, hey, for whatever reason, I always love hearing about grace at church and the love of God and how he wants to know me, and then the rest of the week, I'm beating myself down because I'm not hitting my standards. And so I just walk in here so lonely. Like, of course you want to check out with food or porn or whatever else because you have to get away from those feelings that God doesn't want to be with me. We don't have an understanding, a robust theology, that there's a God who doesn't ask us to ask the question, God, come be with me, but instead makes a statement, I'm coming to be with you. I want to know you more. It's a hard one. I think the second thing we have to, though, consider, because here's the thing, that's just a deconstruction phase when you try to start breaking down what you've held on to so far. Then you've got to start reconstructing. We don't live in a deconstructed mindset all the time. Now we need something that's going to be truly good news. And here's what we find, that we have to realize that this way of communing and connecting with God, of believing he wants to be with me and not me asking the questions, that this way is simpler but more difficult than we understand. Notice the simplicity for Jesus. He simply cocks his head up and then starts talking to God. So simple. He just starts communicating with God. And a lot of you are like, that's weird, I never could try it. Why not? Why not? Now here's, here's probably why. Jesus knew that he had a father that loved him and wanted to center his life around him. 
Jesus knew he had a father that was more interested in him than he was in the father. Jesus knew on the other side of the conversation was someone who actually loved him before the foundations of the world were laid. Maybe it's not simple because you don't have that on the other side. Same for me. And that's something we have to be willing to face and talk about and examine. Why do I keep thinking that? What was handed to me? So it's pretty simple. We just start interacting with God in prayer. And yet, it's so difficult. St. Teresa, I'll go back to her. She said, prayer is simply being alone with him. Think about this. Prayer is simply being alone with him, talking with God, looking at him, sharing his friendship, loving him, and allowing oneself to be loved. Just stare at those words for a second. Looking at him, loving him, and allowing oneself to be loved. This is prayer. This is talking with God. This is what Jesus is doing in this chapter. He's allowing himself to talk with God, to look at God, and to let himself in turn be loved by God. This is wild. And here's the thing. The next thing I give you isn't gonna solve anything for you. Like, so here's the, here's the other thing. I think this is the difficult part. The difficult part is you have to now start creating space for this in your life. What does that mean? You have to start going through all the ways you look at God, hold that up, and ask the question, is this really helping me? Do I really feel like God wants to know me through this? This is why we create the space for not one funneled way theologically to talk about X, Y, and Z things. Because there have been different understandings and approaches to God that have harmed or hurt you in different ways. This is why we have to keep Jesus the center and go, now let's discuss in relationship what we're trying to talk about when we talk about God. Because this is all about relationship, yada, connecting with him. And it's difficult now to create the space for that in your life, whether through prayer and meditation, whether through long walks, seeing him in, in creation. Maybe the way you're gonna spend time with God is you actually spending time with your children. If you have children, and letting those children remind you that they wake up believing that you want to be centered around their life. And I know that sounds weird, like we're gonna raise these horrible little people. Listen, we've already raised horrible people, right? Like, how about we just try to love people and go like, hey, I'm doing the best I can and I just wanna be involved in your life. It's a difficult thing. Jesus seems to understand that the work is worth it. And there's no answer here. I'm not going to leave you with like, do these three things and you'll be closer to God. That'd be false advertisement. But here's what I'll leave you with. In my early 20s, I was, um, I moved to Switzerland, as you do, to go be a missionary. Why I thought I needed to go to where the Reformation started to be a Christian and be a missionary, I don't know. But I did it. I know why, it's because it was Switzerland. So I moved to Switzerland, and I remember doing a tour in the Lausanne Cathedral. It was an old church um, that uh, was built by the Catholic Church, and eventually reformers came in, and it became their church. And it was beautiful, beautiful, just ornate. And the back of the cathedral was this place with all these old chairs, chairs that were probably uh, 500 years old. 500 years old chairs, and they started telling the story about how the chairs were made. 
that every piece of the chair was pre-cut and then was soaked for 100 years in salt water. Every piece of the chair soaked in salt water for 100 years because then that would preserve it. I can't even think that far, much less keep a commitment that long. Like, think about it. It took five to six generations of people passing down the line a vision that was worthwhile, saying, you're going to want to take it out of the water, but don't. Pass it on to your children. You're going to want to take it out of the water, but don't. Pass it on to your children for six generations. And then finally, the sixth generation could take the pieces out and complete the vision and put the chairs together, and it's lasted for 500 years. This is what I'm asking out of you as a church, that if you call Christ City your home, can you buy into this vision to be a place to belong and a place to know God, to stay steady and let the water do its work? Let people be in process, and maybe, just maybe, over time, we keep passing it down, and we find there are others along for this journey, and they're actually not just finding a place to belong, but they're also finding a place to know God. Let's pray. Fathers, we come now before your table that your son has laid out for us. It is our desire to know you, and there's no clearer place in life that we can know you than coming to the table and interacting with Jesus. A friend, a brother, a Lord, a king who didn't exalt himself but lowered himself. And in that, lowering of himself made you experiential. And that means every week, no matter what we go through, we know this, that you are here with us and we can know you. And that's what we pray would happen for us here this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen.